Praise God, saints. Praise God. Would you pray with me as we're about to open God's word? Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And Father, thank you that today and Sunday all over the world, uh, your gospel is preached and proclaimed in gatherings of people that you have redeemed. And Father, thank you that all over the world that this gospel is bearing fruit for the glory of your name. And Father, would you do the same here now as we consider the words of Matthew pertaining to the Lord Jesus. And Father, would you bear fruit in, in, in our hearts, in our lives, in the lives of others around us, Lord. And would your name, Lord, be exalted in our midst. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Saints, you can open up to Matthew uh, 22, verse 34, which I'll soon be reading. Growing kingdom character, practical, intentional tools for developing leaders. This was a little booklet that I was handed when I joined uh, Navigators, a college ministry, during my college days in Amsterdam. A nominal Christian I was, and I opened the book, and I was intrigued by the title, Tools for Developing Leaders, you know, an up-and-coming 18-year-old. Um, I opened the book, and I saw that it, 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 it contained of two parts. The part one was foundational character qualities. Part two, supporting character qualities, growing kingdom character. I distinctly remember being drawn to all the character development issues in the second chapter, supporting qualities, things like purity, patience, self-control. I, I knew I was lacking some in some of those areas. And I was like, just tell me what to do. I'll, I'll get to work. I'll get to those. Um, but I was convinced I should start in the beginning. Um, foundational character qualities. Number one was love. Love. And, and, and truly, I'm, I'm not making this up. I remember being kind of annoyed uh, by having to think about love. How is this connected I remember kind of skipping the pages as fast as I could to get my hands on the material that I thought I really needed growth in, really needed improve upon areas such as purity and anger. In passing over chapter one, there's this foundational quality of love. In passing over this and running to some practical self-help improvement tips and tricks, I settled for a band-aid for the cancer of my soul, quite truly. Little did I know how ignorant I was about my own blindness, uh, how ill of a self-assessment I had given my soul. Little did I know the danger of the track I was on and trying somehow to grow kingdom character, skipping love as foundation. Saints, I would have made a wonderful addition to Team Pharisees, as described in Matthew 22. 
And this is exactly the passage that talks about love. And Matthew gives an account that, that, that speaks of Jesus answering the Pharisees about their inquiry about the law. Let me, let me read to you from verse 34 to verse 40. This is John. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord with the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Saints, this is God's word for us this afternoon. Thanks be to God indeed. Let's uh, do a, a quick little recap before we get to the text. We've been in and out of Matthew a little bit in these, these past few weeks, and I think it's important to grasp the setting in which Matthew speaks this passage. Um, we've, been, we've been reading together um, in, in Matthew 22, and this is, this is the third stab at Jesus, right? The third stab by the religious establishment. In, in the preceding two other attempts, uh, they, they, they've attempted to find fault in Jesus, to trick him. So far, we've seen the Pharisees come to Jesus with the Herodians with a, a sleeky setup, a, a political setup to, to make him say something um, outrageously false um, about paying taxes. Now, this was, this was intended to make him slip, right? And he just dismantled their scheme, all the while calling them out for their malice and hypocrisy. Then we read that on the same day, their rivaling sect, the Sadducees, entered the scene. They too came to Jesus to trick him. They themselves did not believe in physical resurrection, and they asked him just a ridiculous, hypothetical question about this resurrection, a theological question to discredit him, to make a fool out of him publicly. Jesus was singled out by the religious mob, uh, yet single-handedly silenced all of them. And today's text shows us Jesus' final blow uh, to the religious authorities, a final blow in this theological standoff, if you will, with this religious establishment. And, and saints, I know you know this, but it's important to, to point out that this is not just any religious groups. These are and not pagan sects. These are not the Romans. These are people that claim to have the same scriptures as Jesus refers to, people of the inspired scriptures of God, the Torah. John opens his gospel with what transpires here in Matthew. John writes, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And Jesus, indeed, as Matthew records, his interactions have nothing but bright and shining, as the true light of the world would do. 
in his encounters with these religious leaders. He's been shining bright. His, his responses have been brilliant, nothing short of it. And, and, and though the crowds, in their marveling at his words, kind of give some understanding and comprehension of who this man is, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees seem only further to be blinded by the light that was shining on them. And Paul, in Ephesians 5, writes that when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And so it is in these encounters with the Pharisees. Jesus sheds light on what's already there, the darkness of their own hearts. Saints, their response is not submission, a submission which is the proper response to the one through whom the world was made. Not submission, but opposition, further opposition, deepening hatred enters the scene. And this is, this is clearly seen in how Matthew intentionally and very carefully sets up this narrative. They gathered together in verse 34, he says. They gathered. As soon as they heard the Sadducees were silenced, they came together to conspire. Saints, this is the language of the second psalm. Psalm 2 speaks of the nations, the kings of the earth, the rulers, all rising up, gathering together to do what? To conspire and against the Lord and his anointed. It's almost as if Matthew is saying how far God's very own people have fallen, that they now too are included in the number of those rebelling against me and against my anointed. Saints, this is what pride does. A prideful heart is not neutral. Pride doesn't not just or doesn't just not submit to truth. Pride opposes truth, and we'll see much of this blind pride on display in this this text. So that's the setting in which this conversation unfolds. It's it's rooted in hostility and rooted in in pride. Let's look now at the at the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. The actual interaction in. In this passage, it's, 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 a, it's rather the interaction between Jesus and the representative of the Pharisees. And we'll do this in, in three points. We'll briefly look at the good question that was asked, which then gives way to a greater answer, which ultimately points to the greatest fulfillment. A good question, a greater answer, and finally, greatest fulfillment. Here's verse 35 and 36. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. The teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, the guy asking the question was a lawyer, as our translation reads. This is not a lawyer as we would think of in our day, rather a, a religious expert, an expert in the Mosaic law. Mark, uh, in his account of this unfolding narrative, uh, speaks of him as a scribe. As someone who gave interpretation and application of the Mosaic law. Now, this was not just any Pharisee. This was one of their prime guys, and it was almost like he was chosen to, to like, you, you, you put Jesus checkmate with this question. It was their best. So it was a stand-up, a stand-up between the best of what they could give and the Lord Jesus. Teacher, he says, which is the great commandment in the law? Saints, it's not unlikely that this question was highly debated amongst the rabbis of the day. It's not all too surprising. 
This was not a question regarding the Ten Commandments, as we know them from Moses. This was pertaining all the laws of Moses in the, in the Torah, in the Pentateuch. 613 laws were recognized in the books of Moses. 613, that's a lot. 613 precepts to live by. 248 of them were affirmative, as in do this. And then there were 365 negative laws, the do nots. I'm not making this up, 365 do nots, one for every day. How about that? Now, if you have 613 laws to live by, it's not an unusual question to kind of systematize them and wonder, are there any significant laws that we should pay more attention to? Are there more weightier or lighter uh, issues in the law? And Jesus actually rebukes them for not keeping the weightier uh, laws. In the next chapter, this is, this is what he says in, in chapter 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is the same group, the scribes and the Pharisees. Hypocrites, he says, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. These are the lighter laws. And have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But all these things you should have done without neglecting the others. So in a sense, Jesus is affirming their question, affirming the existence of the distinction between weightiness and, and lighter laws. Yet he does so without speaking little of the lighter laws. And of course, this is like with, with what James writes about the law. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, has become guilty of all. All of the law, saints, regardless of weightier versus lighter matters, this is God's holy law. 613 laws on the table. And Jesus would have been familiar with them all. He is the lawgiver. The question on the table is, which one of these is the greatest? Now, remember, this question is not asked out of neutral curiosity. It comes from hostile hearts. And hostile hearts, it responds to Jesus' authority. The Pharisees took issue with his authority. We've seen that they've taken issue with Jesus before, pertaining to the very law of Moses. And this is on their minds. One, one cannot succeed the great Moses, our great Moses. Their very own position in society was built, built on the law and held together by the law. They were the great law keepers, after all. They would teach the law, uphold the law, enforce the law. They were men of the law, and Moses was their guy. And they didn't track with Jesus when he said that he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He was a threat to them, and ultimately they didn't want to see that someone greater than Moses had entered the scene. In their blindness, they had either overlooked or suppressed that Moses actually rode of Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And listening to Jesus was not on their mind. They wanted to frame him instead for saying something that was heretical in regards to the law of Moses. That's the, the heart behind the question. Oh, they, they, please, Jesus, say something stupid. Say something heretical. Now, we got you on this one. That was the, 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 the vibe of their question. Now, saints, before 
considering Jesus' answer to their question, let's just reflect briefly on the nature of the question that was asked. What is the great commandment of all the law? Which one is first above all others? What is foundational to all of the law? In other words, what is the great duty in life of God's people? What is your saint? What is your supreme obligation to God? Saints, these are good questions to ask. These are important questions. And regardless of the foul motivation of the Pharisees, I think we do well to recognize this question, their question, as a good question. And we do well to reflect on questions like this ourselves. What is most important to my Heavenly Father? How can I most please my Father? What is my supreme obligation to you, Lord? I wonder how any of you would answer these questions. Or put differently, what does your daily walk show what you think is most important to God? Are there certain things that come to mind? Are there certain things that are prevalent in your walk with the Lord? Are you tempted to focus on doing certain things for the Lord, keeping certain standards or certain quota? And when you keep them, do you feel good or better about your relationship with God? When you fall short, do you feel crushed? Are there things, saints, that make you feel more accepted by God, more loved by God? If I only would succeed in this, it would be well with my soul. Now, this is an extreme question, maybe, but we're not um, immune to thoughts like that. Saints, the, the way we ourselves answer the, the good question, I think, that the lawyer asks, likely reveals about what you think is most important to God. And the, the troubling thing is that you might be wrong. Saints, you and I are not immune to the legalistic tendency, tendencies of the, of the Pharisees, the master rule keepers. John Kelvin, the famous theologian, calls the human heart a perpetual idol factory. We're constantly inventing ways to, to please God, to, to feel better about our relationship with him, and to, in essence, earn, earn our merit before God. Like the Pharisees, having 365 do-nots to live by, and a do-not for every day, saying, how tempting is that? that we might have created our own set of checkboxes that we just want to make sure to check off every day. I did not do X. As long as I do this, it is well with my soul. Saints, how would you respond to a married couple which is clearly lacking in love for one another, and yet they say, as long as we don't have an affair, our marriage is well. As if a mission of something heinous all of a sudden translates into a, a healthy relationship. It's heinous. Not doing certain things because we know it's the right thing to do, or keeping certain rules that, that might be important to us do not automatically translate into a, a right relationship with God. Now, there's, there's many good things that God's law, God's law calls us to. There's many important things that the law also calls us not to do. But neither of them 
to earn an ounce of righteousness, Not, nor do we please God and, and aim to keep it out of wrong motives. And that's exactly what Jesus' answers to the, to the Pharisees addresses. It's, it's a good question, saints. It's, a, it's an important question. But there's a far, far greater answer. So the, the great answer um, that Jesus gives. Now, it's, it's not unlikely that some would have expected Jesus to, to just answer with the first of the Decalogue, right? The first of the Ten Commandments. This is, after all, God's very finger writing in stone, the very first thing that comes to his mind. A logical thought. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the, the house of bondage. You shall not have other gods before me. Logical answer. That sounds important to me. This is the exact point of a mission. To not have other gods does not automatically translate to loving the God you do claim to have. Listen to Jesus. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all, all the law and the prophets. Saints, what, what, a, what a remarkable answer. What, what a remarkable command. What an all-encompassing command. What a claim on our being. What a, what a claim on our relationships. What a claim on all of the Old Testament scripture. Well, they had hoped for him to say something controversial, but instead Jesus answers in vintage mosaic fashion, quoting their very own hero. It's, it's brilliant. He's literally giving them back what God already had spoken to them. 1,500 years ago, through their very own prophet. And in doing so, Jesus once again affirms Moses, affirmed the law that God gave through him, and he affirms the, the entire Old Testament scriptures. And that's not all. He's, he's, he's answering their, quote, their question with a quotation of, of one of the most iconic uh, mosaic, mosaic passages. It's the Shema that he quotes, found in Deuteronomy 6. This was recited by the Jews three times a day. And he affirms, like, and especially by the, by the, by the, by the Pharisees, they, they knew this by heart, saints. Oh they, oh, they knew this so well. And this is the painful irony that, that Jesus lays bare. This, this deep truth that Jesus answers their loaded question with, this, this truth worn in their forehead, like right there, had become empty of its meaning. It proved to be mere religious practice. And in, in quoting this passage, Jesus is, isn't just answering their question in a, an informative way. It's like, oh yeah, let, let's let me answer that question. His answer is to expose them, to reveal something about them, namely their hypocrisy. And this is, this is what follows right after this chapter, in chapter 23, all about the woes to the, to the scribes and the Pharisees, about their hypocrisy. Saints, they're, they're oh so familiar Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Their wonderful confession. Their once wonderful confession had turned into mere lip service only. And that's exactly what Jesus gets to in, in his answer to them. He, he reveals this about them. They did not have love for God. Jesus himself had said that I and the Father are one. 
Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. The love of the Son wasn't present, quite the, the opposite. Oh, their, their love abounds, saying, don't get this wrong. They had love for all sorts of things, love for their public standing and, and their position of religious authority. Now, Jesus would later point them out as, as, as saying, y'all are folks that have, have cleansed the outside of the cup and the dish, not the inside. Neither was, was love present in relationships with others and in, in, in love for neighbor. Uh, the, the Pharisees did not fit the description in Jeremiah 3, uh, being faithful shepherds after God's own heart, leading with knowledge and understanding. I mean, knowledge they had, they were experts in the law. They had quite the knowledge, and for sure they were leading God's people as well, away from God, that is. There was no true understanding, and they led the people astray. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, in the next chapter. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Yikes. Now, they weren't feeding God's people God's truth. They were feeding their pride and their self-righteousness. And, and they were happy, happy, happy to make disciples of that. So-called experts in the Torah, people of the book. They had a close relationship with the letter of the law without having a relationship with the giver and the fulfiller of the law. Saints, just a word of warning to us as a church. We're people of the good book too, yes? Amen? It's your time in the word, saints, feeding your affections for the Lord Jesus. It's your time in the word as a result causing you to love the Lord Jesus more. Does it cause you to build others up? Because that's what love does. Or is your time in the word often marked by a, a mere increase in knowledge about God? I'll be warned, the Pharisees are, are proof that we're able to fill our minds with all sorts of knowledge, even with truth, while our hearts remain cold. Now, this is a, an oldie, but a goodie. But, but there, there, there's a real difference, saints, between being able to recite Psalm 23 from memory just because you've memorized it versus following and loving the shepherd that is being described in the psalm. There's a real difference. And, and, and this, this is what the text reveals. It's possible. You, you, can, love the God, uh, you can love God's word for, for self-centered reasons. It's possible to be in the word, to even be an expert in the word, being far removed from knowing God and loving God truly altogether. The Pharisees were called out for this constantly. The searching of the scriptures. You search the scriptures for, in it you think you have eternal life, all the while missing the person that the scriptures point to. Saints, God, God forbid, truly, uh, that we ourselves approach scriptures in, in likewise manner. And of course, this is not what you desire, but it's tricky. Well, we want people to be in the word. We want our people to be of the word, in the word, under the word, filled with the word, and overflowing with the word. Please, please be overflowing with the word. God, however, did not 
enter into covenant with Israel and said, I will be their God and they will be my theologians. That's not what he said. God's covenants are established in love, saints. I will be their God and they shall be my people. My people. This is God's covenantal language for us. This, language, this is language of love, language of affection, language of communion and relationship. Indeed, God's covenant with the Jews was grounded in God's steadfast love that he had set on his own people. It was grounded in his love, and he demonstrated his love by, by setting his people free. He heard the cry of his people. He's a, he's a listening God. He redeemed them. He's a, he's, a, he's a loving and redeeming God. And he brought them into the land that he had promised to Abraham long ago. Now, saints, he is a faithful God. And it's in light of these great and wonderful indicatives about who God is, the things that God has done. It's, it's in light of that that the Shema is given to Israel. The imperatives of the command were in response to what the Lord had done. That's the root for the great and first commandment. God's redeeming love for his own people. And God's demand, get this, was that his people would respond to him in return with an all-consuming love for him. An all-consuming love for and of their God. Saying there, there's some commentators that, that, that comment at length about this particular passage, this Shema, hear, O Israel. What does it look like to love God with all of our hearts? What, what does an all-devoted soul look like? What, what about our mind and our, our strength? I think there's merit in thinking about all these in isolation and think well about them. It's like, what, what would that look like? But the main point of the Shema is completeness. That's the main bottom line. The textual emphasis in the Hebrew is the repetition of the word all. It's not love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's all that is emphasized. And this, this all speaks of the entire devotion of God's people to him, all of your being, all of your faculties. The purpose, I think, of, 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 this, of this text is to answer every possible question you throw at it with yes. Yes. Does it mean that I should love God with yes? Yes. That too. What about my affections? Yes. What about my intellect? Yes. All of it. All is emphasized. God's wholehearted love for us, saints, demands our complete being to respond with love for him. That is the bottom line emphases. And, and this is surely what Jesus aims to communicate in his answer to the question that the Pharisees launched at him. Although they knew about the truth, they missed their application completely. Jesus doesn't stop there. They've asked him a question in the singular, but he answers in the plural. And, and this is no mistake. This is intentional. A second is like it, he says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is Jesus again quoting Moses now from Leviticus 19. The second is like the first. Not the same, but flowing from the first. Jesus is emphasizing that, that, that the first cannot be kept without keeping the second. 
The second is like the first, not the same. We cannot cling to one and ignore the other. We, we, we cannot aim to love our, our, our neighbor truly without it flowing from our love for God. Nor can we say we have love for God without having love for our neighbor. John later would refer to this as being a liar of anyone who, who says such a thing. And it's worth noting that in, in quoting both these passages from Moses, Jesus speaks of both the, the vertical dimension of our, our commandment, of, of, of the law, our love towards God, God-centered love, as well as the horizontal uh, dynamics of, of our relationship with others, love for neighbor. And in doing so, it's, it's incredibly smart. In doing so, he, he sums up uh, both tablets of the Ten Commandments in just two, two, two words. The first tablet, the first four, God-centered, as well as the horizontal, uh, later six commandments. In other words, he, he upholds the integrity of the entire law that Moses had spoken through, or God spoken through Moses, rather. It's as, as if Jesus is reminding them of, of what he had already told them earlier in Matthew. I do not think, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. But Jesus keep, keeps adding to the answer. A singular question, and then here it goes again. He, he goes further. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Other translations rendered as more literally as hanging. It's the word in the Greek, hang. The NASB, for example, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What does that mean? I think it's to say that everything commanded in, in all of the Torah and all of the prophets and the entire Old Testament, in other words, is either included or covered or is an extension or an application of these two things. Everything hangs on these two. Just think about this visually. Uh, these two commandments of love are like two massive hinges on which the entire door of the Old Testament hangs. Removing one of those hinges makes the door just dysfunctional. You need both hinges. We see these echoes, uh, friends, throughout the entire Torah, but it's, it's, not just, it's just not just the Old Testament. The entire scripture speaks of this. This is echo just, this just goes throughout the scriptures. In Romans, the pinnacle of, of New Testament theology, Paul makes the same argument that Jesus makes. Chapter 13, 9. For the commandments, he says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Different book of the Bible, same message, same foundational truth. Paul, saints, even speaks as love being the essence of our holiness. Get this. To the saints in Thessalonica, he writes this. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So that, purpose clause following, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Do you get that? Paul prays for the saints, and he asks God to fill them with love. Why? So that they will be established in holiness. Saying, this is, this is crucial. This is important. Do you think of your holiness in this way often? 
when we sing songs like take time to be holy, that when we spend time thinking of, of our need of growing in holiness, what's an area that you think of? What, 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 is, what comes to mind? Is it your purity? What rules, what don'ts, what do's? Or do we think of growing in love? Love of God, love of others, as our holiness. Paul seems to imply that that's exactly what it is. And Paul's praying for the saints to be filled with that kind of love. Saints, it's no surprise that Paul centers around this theme of love. Uh, The aim of our charge is love, he would say. Love for God and, and neighbor is the aim of all of Paul's ministry. And indeed, it's love for God and love for neighbor that are the perpetual echoes of his writing throughout the scriptures as well. Saints, a quick recap then. The purpose of God giving us the scriptures is for us to love him supremely. That's the purpose of your Bible. And to likewise love others as yourselves. Obey, saint, the great commandment, the first and the second, is the essence of the spirit of the entire law that's given to us. In light of this, saints, It's fair to say that we can know whether our reading of the scripture and our understanding of the scripture is valid and validly tested by the fruit of love in our lives. It's valid to say then that that, that love of God is, is easier said than done, saints. John is quick to remind us that if we say we love God but 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 do not love our neighbor, we are liars. Have mercy, God. Have mercy. Saints, do do you feel at all the all-encompassing nature of the answer that Jesus has given? The nature of this command in response to the the, the lawyer's question. Can you you think of of, of anyone you know here that that has ascended to the level of of fulfilling this law? Who is capable of these saints, of of these things, saints? And and that is a proper question to ask. It's it's a right question to ask. Who is capable of these things? And it seems, it seems that Jesus is asking this very question right after the passage that we're currently in. Look at the following following verses for for a second. Verses 41 and and 42, kind of stepping outside of the context or out of the the passage and, and looking at the broader context. And Matthew records that while the Pharisees were gathered together, this is the same scene, while they were gathered Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? It's like Jesus, saints, saying to the Pharisees, y'all are are just boasting in the law. This this ain't ground for boasting. This ought to humble you. Can we talk about the Messiah for a second? Is that what we can do? Don't y'all get it? Y'all fall short. Don't you see your inability to even, 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 even keep the, the smallest portion of it? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I really think that the purpose, saints, of this account given to us in Scripture is not for Jesus to explain the great commandment to the Pharisees. He's not explaining it. Rather, to point them to their inability to keep them. 
Moses himself wrote that all who rely on the works of the law are under the curse. And Jesus is like, y'all keep asking questions about the commandment. You're even asking about the great commandment. Can we, can we instead talk about the great fulfillment? You know, y'all, Messiah that the word speaks about? What do y'all think about him? Jesus is feeding them the right question, saints. Because having just considered that the perfect law of God, the all-encompassing love that is required to please God, the Messiah is the only right thing to talk about. He's not merely the, the great law giver. He is the great law the fulfiller. And then in Christ, then we see the great fulfillment of the great commandment. Saints, the law, and especially this greatest commandment, must point us to Christ. It must. Lest we read this passage in, in despair and anguish. But Paul in, in Galatians speaks of the law as a guardian or a tutor, as another translation renders it. Therefore, he says, the law, the law was our tutor. To do what? To bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith in him. Oh, dear listener, your salvation or keeping of the law, any merit that you like to get out of the law, this is not the way to go. Instead, Paul writes, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And saints, knowledge of sin, we've been given plenty of, even in considering this greatest commandment. Now, saints, how we fall short, how you and I fall short of love of God, love of neighbor, how much, how much we need our Jesus, how much we need his righteousness. And saints, how has he provided for us? How the Lord, who has said, I will be their God, they will be my people. How he has provided for us. Paul in Galatians 3 writes that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It's not too far a stretch, Shane, to, 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 to quickly look and, and consider the word hang. Hanged on a tree. Matthew writes that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It's the same Greek word. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And the one who fulfilled them perfectly in your place with perfect love for the Father, perfect love for neighbor, himself hung for us on the cross. So much so that we would be redeemed from the curse of the law. Saints, don't forget that picture. All the, all the commandments hanging on, on these two things, all the while Jesus hanging wide and open for you on that cross. Don't forget that picture. Saints, it's of no coincidence that Jesus on the road to Emmaus in, in Luke 24 speaks about his own suffering as that very fulfillment. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And beginning with Moses, all the law, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in Scripture, in all of Scripture, the things pertaining himself. Oh, remember this, saints. That Jesus was pierced for your transgression. And the good news of the gospel is that for all who trust in his name, for the forgiveness of sin, his obedience, his righteousness is credited to you. I'm not making this stuff up. This is, this is Paul. And to the one who does no work, 
but who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteous. How blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will count no sin. And saints, not only does he cover our sin, cover us in his righteousness, clothe us in us, he performs the miracle of the new birth in us. Regeneration, taking cold hearts of stone, hearts that cannot love, and gives us a heart of flesh instead, a heart able to love. Saints, this is divine intervention. Praise God for divine intervention, enabling us to love him. Saints, on this end of glory, we will not love him perfectly, not without sin, but we're able to love God truly with all of our being. Saints, how can we not love him? How can we not love him? We are those who have come to know Christ as our Savior. And we are those who have tasted of his goodness and have seen that the Lord is good. We, have, we are those who have experienced his grace upon grace. We, we are those who have, have tasted of his mercy. How can we not say, I love the Lord? I love you, Lord. And why? For he has first loved us. Now, saints, this is, this is all of grace. Let's not forget that this is grace, lest we boast. Through, through faith, we have been saved. And this is not from yourself, saints. Brian prayed this earlier. It's the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. No one. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Saints, you were created to love. You were saved to love. You are enabled by the very Spirit of God dwelling in your new heart to love and to love God. So saints, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the great commandment. And when you fail, dear saints, which you will, do not despair. Do not despair. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Confess your sins to him instead. He is, he is faithful, saints. Faithful, faithful to forgive and, and glory in Christ. Glory in your Savior. Remember that all his... All, all his commandment hangs on love and that he himself, because of love for you, himself was hung on the cross so that you and I will no longer suffer the penalty of our sin. Remember, saints, that you are no longer under the penalty of the law. Sin no longer has dominion over you. In Christ, you are under grace. Saints, think on this. You are the blessed one whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Glory to Christ. So saints, may we go from here today uh, with a awareness of God's love for us. In the power of the Spirit, saints, walk out of this building and be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ has loved you and gave himself up for you. This is the gospel for you. Praise God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, 
We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the gospel, Lord, how we are needy of it. Father, help us. Help us, Lord. Establish our hearts in love. Establish us in holiness, Lord. Increase our love. Give us love for you. Help us, Lord. Help us loving uh, you as we ought to. And we are without any excuse not to love you, Lord. You've been so good to us. And Father, help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us to love one another as you, Christ, have loved us by laying down your life for us. Uh, we need help for all of this, Lord. And you have promised that you will surely help us with this. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.